Morning Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. President Trump signed something that did something. And you're watching AM to DM. Yeah, or maybe it did nothing. Who knows? Here's a tweet from Southpaw. The parts of the executive order that purport to end family separation are kind of like the Cheshire Cat, fading to nothing when you look closely. It's administration policy to maintain family unity when, quote, where appropriate and consistent with law and available resources. Okay, so what, huh. is, what does this mean? Mm. What does this mean and huge implications? We are going live from the district right now with BuzzFeed News Justice reporter Zoe Tillman to help us go over what exactly the executive order means for these families. Good morning, Zoe. Good morning. So Zoe, what does the actual executive order say? So I, I want to stress at the start that it says a lot or it says something about addressing the problem of family separations, but it doesn't do a whole lot on that front. So what it says is the administration, as you guys said, has a policy of keeping families together. Okay. What does it do in practice? It first says that the Department of Homeland Security is going to keep custody of families while criminal proceedings and immigration proceedings are ongoing. So that means one agency is going to be in charge of uh, overseeing families while they're being detained. It then says that DOD, the Department of Defense, is going to be responsible for finding space to house families. So we're talking about another agency being looped into this process. Um, it says that if DOD needs more space, they can build more space. Obviously, building facilities will take a lot of time, so that extends the timeline out to some unknown period of time. It asks other agencies to also look for space. And then finally, critically, it tells Attorney General Jeff Sessions to go to a judge in California who's been overseeing a settlement that dates back to 1997 that basically says you cannot house kids indefinitely in immigration detention. And it's asking Sessions to go to the judge and say, can you change that order so that we can house families together, so we can detain families together for some indefinite period of time to carry out this policy of keeping families together? There is no time frame for this. There is no sense of how long it might take the judge to act. So really, absent action from a court or from Congress to you know, do something to address this, it, it doesn't really do a whole lot in the short term. Okay, so let's keep breaking this down. Zoe, what happens to the 2,300 kids who have already been detained? So the Department of uh, Health and Human Services, which manages kids who are detained, Department of Homeland Security manages adults, so we're talking HHS now, has basically said they're still figuring this out. You know, we know that this was an order that was drafted over a relatively short period of time. It was being worked on until, you know, the last minute. Um, and it's really not clear what's going to happen to these kids. Uh, a spokesperson initially had said the process was just going to keep going as usual, that not a whole lot was going to change. Uh, another spokesperson, they came back later and they said that person misspoke and they're still figuring out it's early. Um, so I think this is where we really see the last minute nature of this executive order play out. There isn't a real implementation plan in place. So as of now, you know, there is a process for trying to reunify kids with family members, sponsors, and if those aren't available, placing them in licensed facilities. So as far as we know, that's all continuing to go forward. Nothing has stopped that. But in terms of reunifying families, uh, it's really unclear. 
It's it's really unclear. Uh, are, is there a chance, though, Zoe? I just need to ask: Is there a chance that the government can reunite those 2,300 children who have already been separated from their families with their loved ones? It's again, it's really hard to say. I, I feel very frustrated not having a lot of clear answers, um, but that's really where we are right now. So we've already heard from parents who have said they've not been told where their kids are. We don't know how much communication is going on between DHS and HHS in terms of tracking, you know, here is a parent in this location, here is a kid in this location, let's make sure we know where they're going at any given time together. It depends on how much agencies are talking to each other. It depends on how quickly, you know, once they figure out that uh, a parent is here and a kid is here, how do we get them back together? It also depends on whether they have the space. Um, we don't know how much family appropriate space the Department of Homeland Security has right now. It's really placed that ball in the defense department's uh, court to figure that out. And we know from uh, reporting that DOD has a couple bases that they're looking at to have space available for families, but how quickly that's going to be available and then how quickly they can move families, you know, reunite families and then move them into that space. We just don't know. Okay, so that's what we know, which isn't much, uh, frankly, right, about the 2,300 children who have already been separated. But let's move to another scenario. What happens to a family that is detained at the border, you know, today or tomorrow under this executive order? So assuming space is available, let's say hypothetically DHS does have uh, family space. We know that they've had family space before. Um, so assuming that's available under the current policy in theory, again, the, the policy doesn't order, you know, tomorrow you must house families together. It says there is a policy, a preference for housing families together. So let's assume that everyone is on the same page about keeping families together. A family crosses the border. Uh, in theory, they are now housed together. Um, but that's time limited. Under the 1997 settlement that we talked about earlier, um, courts have interpreted that to mean essentially that 20 days at most is a reasonable period of time to keep a kid detained before they need to be moved out into you know, the custody of an adult, a family member, a parent, a licensed facility, um, someplace that is not a secure detention center. The whole point is to not keep kids locked up. Um, so as of now, that 20-day period is still in effect. So even if a family stopped at the border today or tomorrow, they're housed together right away, things are proceeding until that order, that court order changes or until Congress does something. At the end of 20 days, our understanding and the Justice Department's legal interpretation still is that the, they would need to be separated again. The kid would need to be moved out into a non-secure location. So the plan, the plan for a family would be that if they've been detained for more than 20 days, the child would again be re-separated from the family. That's right, unless the parent were also released along with the kid, but the Trump administration has indicated that they're going ahead with zero tolerance. They're going to prosecute um, anyone that DHS refers for illegal entry. So as long as they're doing that and they're not going back to the Obama administration's practice of you know, releasing on bond or with an understanding that they need to come back to court, as long as they're not releasing parents, they would need to separate the kids out again. Okay, so that 1997 court order that created the 20-day limit sounds really important, especially now. What can the judge who's going to rule on it in California actually do with the order? The judge, in theory, has a fair amount of leeway, um, but it, it depends on specifically what 
the Justice Department asks for, and very critically, how the other side responds. Um, this is not a one-sided thing where DOJ goes to the judge and says, we want to do X, and then the judge says yes or no. There are plaintiffs, uh, lawyers, who have been in this case since you know, the late 80s, honestly, that this litigation has been going on. And their job is to enforce the settlement. And the whole point of this case was to not keep kids locked up, as I said. So any plan that DOJ comes forward with that would involve the indefinite detention of children, even if they're it means reuniting them with their parents. I think we've gotten the sense it's going to face a lot of pushback from these lawyers. And they're going to argue that the whole idea was to not keep children detained um, for a number of reasons. And these are lawyers who have um, in separately already been accusing the government of failing to comply with the settlement in terms of conditions for kids who are currently in custody, uh, whether they're in a, a different type of facility or not. They're still under the the custody of the, the federal government. So they're already accusing the government of, you know, not treating these kids well. So okay. I think any plan to keep them in custody longer is going to face a lot of pushback. And so, honestly, so, we're probably going to see other litigation if the plan is to keep children detained. So a lot of back and forth on that one, Zoe, but what would a change to that court order mean for the families? What the administration, uh, it seems to be pitching is basically getting rid of the 20-day limit. So they would say, as long as an immigration proceeding or a criminal illegal entry case is pending and the family you know, is detained, keep families together, um, but it would be indefinite. These cases can drag out for months or even years. The immigration courts are facing a backlog of hundreds of thousands of cases. So these are not you know, we're not talking about a couple of days or a couple of weeks that families would be detained, albeit together, but still detained in a secure facility. Um, and it's, I think we're going to see a lot more legal action. I should say there's also already other litigation out there challenging family separation. So this could all get a lot more complicated if a judge were to say, grant a motion that's already pending from the ACLU to block the administration from separating families. So if we get some kind of nationwide injunction that seems to conflict with what the EO is saying or what the administration's current policy is, um, this could this already very complicated situation could get a lot more complex. Could even get more complex. Well, Zoe, thank you so much for your insight on all of this. Absolutely. We have a tweet here from Nichelle Stevens uh, that I certainly agree with. This is a clusterfuck. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to own that we are by no means out of the woods with this crisis. And to that point, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. The Trump administration just bought Congress some time, basically, to change the immigration laws and end family separation. But lawmakers are heavily divided on a fix. Paul joins us now. Uh, Paul, good morning. Hey, good morning. Did someone say clusterfuck? Welcome to Congress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, welcome to the Hill. All right, so Paul, what is the nature of the divide uh, between Democrats and the GOP on this fix? Tell us more about the clusterfuck. Okay, so, well, let me tell you. Okay, everyone agrees that uh, parents and children should not be separated. That's the easy part. The question is, how do you do that? As Zoe was saying, legally, the government cannot detain children for long periods of time. So you essentially have two choices to keep families together. You either change the law and allow children to be kept in detention facilities for long periods of time with their parents, or you just release the whole family. 
Republicans want to do the first thing. They want to keep, uh, they change it, keep children in detention with their parents. Democrats are hugely opposed to this. They say it is inhumane to lock up children indefinitely. They want to go to essentially the system that Obama did, which was just release the whole family and have them come back for court appointments and other regular check-ins. Republicans are hugely opposed to this because they say it's essentially a catch-and-release system because some people don't show up for their court appointments. They just go on the lam. So, those are two completely diametrically opposed approaches, and they need to find a compromise. Luckily, there is nothing Congress is better at failing at than passing an immigration bill. They have been trying to reform our immigration system for decades, failing every single time. I'm sure it'll be fine this time. I'm sure they'll get it right this time, and yeah. they'll nail it. I have. I, I'm rusting ashore. Mm, Sleeping mm. well tonight. Um, is there any debate in Congress over whether or not the executive order is even legal? I don't, they're kind of, they're not getting into it too much, but I can tell you, I think most people think the executive order is not going to work long term. I mean, if you think about it, it's essentially like if you, you know, you had a court agreement or you lost a court case and then you just go back to the judge and be like, hey, can we just like redo that one? Can we just like go a different direction on it? Like, you can try, but it's probably not going to work. And that's how Congress is approaching it. Like, okay, the executive order, probably not going to change the system. But what it does do is it'll take a little bit of time to get struck down. They're going to stop separating families in the meantime. And it buys a little bit of time for Congress to pass a bill, you know, assuming they were actually able to do that. So I think that's how they're approaching it. It's like, all right, we've got a little bit of an extension here. We've got a few weeks, a month maybe, who knows. So we've got a window to pass a bill. Absolutely. All right. So I want to ask, uh, what is it like on the Hill today with this vote approaching like are is there a chance of getting because they are really split right so it'd be one or two votes to get something passed are people making backroom deals is there a lot of chatter like what's it like there in capitol hill well no because that's already been done so there was basically a schism in the republican party the moderates versus you know the hardliners i guess you would call them the freedom caucus and the freedom caucus won there was going to be an effort for a bipartisan bill that failed so now you've got two votes today on republican only bills one of them is super conservative the goodlatte bill i mean it has no chance everyone knows it has no chance even the sponsor of the bill know it has no chance then you've got what's called the compromise bill which is a slightly softer but still very republican bill i mean it's it's possible it's possible it passes but I was talking to one of the authors of the bill late yesterday, and he said they didn't have the votes yet. So the more likely scenario is both of these bills go down in flame and Congress is left with nothing. One last uh, optimistic question. Um, do Republicans even need Democrats to pass one of these bills, or will Democrats be totally just locked out of this process? So in the House, in theory, no, they don't need Democrats, except in practice, they might because Republicans cannot agree on a bill themselves and probably are going to be incapable of passing a bill on their own. But in theory, no. In theory, they do not need the Democrats. In the Senate, yeah, they absolutely do. They need about 10 of them. So a Republican-only bill that is very, very conservative is not going to fly. Republic uh, Democrats are going to block it in the Senate. So here we, here we have this situation again. Any, any bill that's sort of middle ground enough to win over... 10 Democrats is not, is, you're going to lose a ton of uh, Republicans and then the president might not sign it. And this is the crisis where we're in is that I personally have a hard time envisioning any bill that you can get a majority of Republicans in the House, Donald Trump and 10 Democrats in the Senate all supporting. That is a thin 
needle <laughs> to try to thread. And I, I, I really, I don't know what it looks like, and I can tell you of the proposals that have been put forward so far, and there's been about a half a dozen of them, I don't think any of them get there. All right, well, that's where we are. Thanks for joining us this morning, Paul. Cheers. <laughs> a very depressed cheers. Mm. Uh, well, Press Secretary for the Department of Homeland Security, Tyler Q. Holton, who has really been at it this week, tweeted, it's unfortunate that American Air, United, and Fly Frontier no longer want to partner with the brave men and women of DHS to protect the traveling public, combat human trafficking, and swiftly reuniting unaccompanied illegal immigrant children with their families. So brave. That last line yeah. is a lie. It's literally a lie. It's not what's happened. Mm. It's true. And so that rebuke and flat-out lie came after numerous airlines told the government not to use their planes to fly children who have been separated from their families by immigration officials. Senior transportation reporter at Business Insider Benjamin Zhang joins us now. Good morning, Benjamin. Good morning. So at this point, how many airlines have issued statements vowing not to allow their planes to be used to transport migrant children? I think pretty much most of uh, the major U.S. carriers, uh, American United, Southwest, Alaska, uh, have uh, stepped up and said uh, no to any government attempt to fly, uh, you know, children separated by immigration officials uh, at the border. Um, a few have stayed uh, relatively quiet. Delta released a statement later on yesterday uh, condemning the act, but did not go as far as saying do not use our aircraft. Uh, JetBlue has been relatively quiet. We haven't heard anything really from them. I've reached out to my contacts at the airline. I uh, haven't heard anything yet. So um, they're really the only major U.S. carrier that hasn't come out uh, in full force. Okay. Now, all of the airlines in their statement have been very careful to say that they have not seen evidence uh, that, you know, children who are being detained have been on their airplanes. But, of course, they are saying, we want to make sure it doesn't happen. Um, if that's the case, how are children being moved around the country? Like, what do we know about the transportation? I mean, from what we know about government practice uh, in transporting detainees of any sort, whether they're, you know, children separated from families or people set for uh, deportation, uh, they use a series of transportation um, systems, including buses. They also charter aircraft uh, and flying commercial is a part of that network. Um, the reason I think they're saying they, they, there's no evidence is because the government usually does not tell airlines what they're doing ahead of time. Uh, so it's very difficult to know, uh, you know, who is, say, an illegal immigrant set for deportation versus someone who is just uh, have been uh, who is just taken into detention at the border and is being transported uh, to a detention center somewhere. I feel like a theme of this show this morning is a lack of communication, especially between government groups. Uh, I do want to ask this though. Last just last night, the Times posted video of seven boys carrying government labeled belongings arriving at LaGuardia airport. Um, and they were getting off of an American Airlines flight. So that was after American Airlines had made their statements. Do these statements actually hold any weight? They hold some weight. I think it, it holds the weight of uh, the airline's uh, intentions, I guess. I, I don't think the airlines really can ban these people from being on the planes. The government, after all, uh, they do go and buy tickets. Uh, so the, the airlines can say, that they don't want the government doing this, but I really don't think they can forcefully uh, kick off 
these people because after all the government are you know ticket buying uh customers I also wanted to ask you, um, Benjamin, as a, as a business reporter, what is the significance um, of seeing major airlines, not the most um, radical organizations, continue to wade into politics at this point? I, I think it's a sign of the times. Uh, when, when you have a, a company, it's not merely this monolith. Uh, it's you know, it's an organization that's very organic. It's, there's 80,000, 100,000 people working for you. And so it's not just your customers want to know where you stand, but your employees want to know where you stand. And also, as publicly traded companies, uh, your, their investors want to know uh, what's going on. Um, and so with them stepping up and making their uh, stances known, uh, it, it sort of removes all... Um, barriers to communication, if you will. Uh, and, and, and it's it's good. I, I think we should know what uh, the members of, the prominent members of the business community are thinking, are, are doing, uh, and what is the corporate stance at a company. I think it's good for worker morale. It's good for uh, customers in terms of they know what, you know what product they're buying, and it's good for investors. All right, and, and let's talk about the workers. Hunt Palmquest, a flight attendant based in Dallas, wrote for the Houston Chronicle, quote, I won't work flights that separate immigrant kids from families. So did pressure from airline employees play any role in these corporate decisions, Benjamin? Um, I'm, I'm sure they did. Uh, and United is an airline that's, uh, you know, had labor issues in the past. I think that the current CEO, Oscar Munoz, has done a good job in sort of uniting the workforce. Uh, since he took um, took office a couple of years ago, uh, absolutely these uh, you know they, these um, businesses tend to be very heavily unionized. I'm sure the employees are talking to their union reps, and the union reps are talking uh, to the airline management. Uh, so certainly, I, I would think that All right. uh, the the voices of the employees are heard. All right. Well, Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. All right, we're going to continue talking about this ongoing crisis when we come back in just a moment. When I woke up this morning, one of the first tweets I saw was this one from Alex Kantrowitz, highlighting a quote from a Washington Post piece. Texas judge, I can't understand this. If someone at the jail takes your wallet, they give you a receipt. They take your kids and you get nothing, not even a slip of paper. Not, not even a slip of paper. Think about that. Your child is being taken away, and there's just no information provided on how you might at all be reconnected. Yeah, and when you've got federal judges asking these questions, you know. Um, that piece uh, is from the Washington Post. is an essay written by Eric Hanshu. He's an assistant federal public defender in El Paso, Texas, and he's just doing incredible work. And it, throughout his piece, he just eloquently just kind of goes through all of these scenarios and just shows, like, this is not normal and just the amount of confusion and, and miscommunication. So it was an anecdote that's on my mind a lot this and, morning. And one anecdote in yeah. that piece that there were Whew. so many of them. Yeah. Um, myself this morning, I, I saw a BuzzFeed news story about an 83-year-old farmer who had sold land to the U.S. government that just hadn't been used in the last few years, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden these tents have gone up. It's where they're deta detaining teenagers. He thinks it's despicable. And to kind of have these humanized stories as well, I think, is really important, especially as journalists and reporters are not being granted access or answers to their questions. Right. That seems so key, right? I mean, the, 
the audio tape of children crying in that facility, right, from earlier this week or last week. Um, you know, and, and these anecdotes, essays, interviews are playing such a crucial role because we can't even get people in there to take their own video footage and photographs at this point. So. Exactly. And, and you see it. You see it all the time these last few days on the timeline. So we wanted to take it to the timeline. There's so many troubling stories and anecdotes about this current situation. So share a link to a story about the border crisis that has really hit home for you. Use the hashtag am to dm Let's share them. We can read them and we can talk about them. Absolutely. Yeah. So listen, at this point, you've probably seen this fundraiser at the top of your feed on Facebook. Reunite an immigrant parent with their child. That fundraiser, which started uh, over the weekend, has now surpassed over $15 million. It's rising fast. Its new goal is $16 million. BuzzFeed News editor Tanya Chen joins us now to talk about this campaign. Good morning, Tanya. Good morning, guys. All right, so this fundraiser's original goal was $1,500. Now it's been raised, obviously. It's, it's and so, $20 million Yeah, now. been raised to $20 million. Uh, how did it all start? Yeah, so I mean, the last I checked, it's now over 60 million, and the new goal is at uh, 20 million, which is pretty incredible. Um, basically, it was started by a couple based in the Bay Area, um, Charlotte and Dave Wilner. Um, they just were following the news and were um, kind of horrified by what they were learning and seeing from the southern border, particularly about you know families being separated. Um, and so they took it upon themselves to start a um, fundraiser on Facebook, and they started with a very modest goal of $1,500. So that figure was um, $1,500 is the minimum bond needed to get a parent out of detention um, and reunite them with their child. And obviously, it's far, far exceeded that goal. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of money they have on their hands. So what can you tell us about RACIS, uh, the organization they plan on donating this money to? Yeah, so the organization is based in Texas. It's a nonprofit, and um, it's the biggest in the country, if not in that region, um, their website touts. And they basically offer um, free to low-cost uh, legal counsel for families, um, you know, with, you know, immigrant children and parents and, um, yeah, in that, in that region. How did this fundraiser uh, go viral? I mean, it's interesting seeing how the news and politics are now hitting social media with such impact. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I believe most of it is organic. You know, I think a lot of people, um, I know Facebook has been pushing it now that they see it just how momentous it is. They said it's the, their biggest fundraiser to date. Um, but it, you know, it's really a lot of people who saw that, you know, this, this fundraiser was really mission based, you know, that they really wanted to reunite children with their parents. Um, and they were just sharing it like crazy, you know, like you said, it's on the top of everyone's timelines. Obviously, you know, algorithm plays a major part and, you know, that's the, that is the first thing a lot of people see, but it really is kind of a grassroots effort um, from a lot of people who are also very, very concerned and want to, you know, exercise some kind of agency in all of this. Mm -hmm. Exercise some kind of agency. So it's it's the largest fundraiser in Facebook history. Um, they're approaching twenty million dollars. Uh, I do have to ask though: do they do they have any plans? Do they know when they're going to stop? And is that when Racist gets the money? When do they get to see all this cash? 
Yeah. Um, for what I understand, they're still collecting money. Um, they, you know, held, you know, a bit of a, you know, Facebook live press conference yesterday. And their latest update was that they're still um, working with Facebook to receive the funds and they're coming in. I don't know if they have a cap on it. Um, it sounds like they, they're still raising that goal every time that, that they're receiving, that they're meeting um, and exceeding previous goals. Um, but yeah, they're still in the process of collecting that those funds right now. All right. Well, awesome. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks, guys. Absolutely. It's interesting to see the role like social media and, and fundraising is playing like in, in a social way, you know, after Hurricane Maria and a lot of the hurricanes last year, a similar response. People want agency. Yeah, I mean, but to see one, you know, to see one kind of really fall into the center, it's been so incredible to watch. Absolutely. Well, uh, you might have also heard about Stephen Miller's phone number being tweeted out yesterday. Mm. Uh, here's what happened next with that. Twitter locked Splinter's account after the news site tweeted what it reported is White House advisors Stephen Miller's phone number. Uh, it also locked the account of various journalists who tweeted the number. One of those journalists was BuzzFeed News reporter Ryan Mack, who had this to say. Twitter is suspending accounts that tweeted out the link to the Splinter story with Stephen Miller's number. Whatever you think of tweeting out the actual number, going as far as to censor a link from a legitimate news site is unprecedented. Well, Charlie Warzel, senior technology reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us now to talk about these implications. Charlie, good morning. Morning. All right, so what exactly is the policy that Twitter says Splinter violated? So Twitter has a very long-standing policy about uh, tweeting out any private information, any information that is not available in any other database anywhere else that includes addresses, um, any kind of personal identifying information, and as we know now, phone numbers. Hmm. So that's a pretty long-standing policy, and this was, I mean, regardless of what you think of uh, Stephen Miller, um, this was a, like a clear violation of that policy as it stands. A clear violation of that policy. But I've got to ask, like, one, what does it mean to be locked? And two, have we seen Twitter in the past really go after something uh, this strongly? So um, what they ended up doing is uh, people thought that their accounts were suspended, uh, you know, indefinitely. Really what it was was they locked the accounts and uh, in this situation, Twitter does that with sort of a send you an email and it says your account is locked right now. Everyone can see the tweets that you've, uh, the rest of the tweets you've tweeted. Sometimes the offending tweet is hidden, um, but they just basically tell you in order to get the ability to tweet back, you need to delete that tweet. Um, what's different about this is that there was a news organization involved. Uh, Splinter is part of Gizmodo Media Group. They're a national news organization. Um, and it's really the first time that Twitter's had to deal with um, sort of having to s censor or squash uh, a piece of content um, and tweets coming from a news organization because it violated their rules. So it's that that is kind of unprecedented. They Twitter yesterday afternoon was blocking any sharing of that story, um, and that's something that sort of 
butts up against the, you know, the, the idea of what Twitter's role in censorship and, uh, and promoting content really is. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by this because, like, in a way, Splinter, uh, you know, published a story with a phone number which created another kind of meta story about news organizations. And so, like Ryan Mack, just even kind of talking about the article created a problem for Twitter. Um, for right now, like, what is Splinter saying? Um, are they still kind of standing by their editorial decision? Yeah, absolutely, they are. Um, you know, they're they have a, a, a lot of voice, um, and they uh, they clearly you know did this to sort of uh, obviously yes, there's some sort of activism around Stephen Miller, who's the architect of the uh, the border issue uh, the country is dealing with. But but I think also this you know this was to to make a, a bigger and broader point uh, about Twitter and about the role that it plays. And and I I mean this is a a very peculiar instance, but I think it's one that we might see more and more often as, you know, media outlets, you know, take more of an activist role. And as, as people continue to sort of try new information warfare tactics, because this is both a media outlet problem and just a, an issue of, you know, once that number got out there, hundreds and hundreds of people every minute were tweeting it. So it's sort of like almost like a virus that spreads out into the world and it's hard to, you know, regain control of. Um, let, let me ask you this, Charlie. Are there any updates to the story? Uh, you said that Twin, I'm sorry, Splinter is sticking uh, with their decision to publish this. Is their account still locked? Are there going to be further repercussions for them? So, sort of the the way that this story ended in a tidy fashion is that uh, the number uh, that was reportedly Stephen Miller's, I, I don't know for sure that it that it was. I believe it was uh, was deactivated. And so the number no longer works. Twitter was informed of that. And since the number doesn't work anymore, uh, they sort of took the, the blanket uh, lock situation off of everyone's accounts. So now you can tweet the number because it's effectively worthless. So, so that's, that's what Twitter did later this afternoon. But I think there will be times when it's you know, a normal person's number, uh, not a public figure. And, and then you know, in that case, it, it's hard to know when this would really ever stop. They would just sort of be blocking in perpetuity. Blocking in perpetuity. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. No problem. All right, friends, later in the show, I'm sitting down with Seth Rogen and Dominic Cooper to discuss Preacher. And, you know, frankly, it's been quite a morning. I wouldn't mind. Yeah, we're going to lighten <laughs> things up a little bit. Lighten things up a little bit. We've got fire tweets yeah. coming up next. Yeah. And you love Preacher. I do. I really do love the show. So I have many questions. <laughs> many, many questions. Welcome back. It is time for your regularly scheduled fire tweets. Let's Burn it down. Let's get into them. <laughs> Hormonal Hussy, you tweeted, Spotify, I've painstakingly curated these six new playlists for you. I do this every day to please you because I love you. Apple Music, have you heard the new Drake song? LOL, whatever. Why do you like <laughs> Apple? You insist on just using Apple Music. Man. What's the tea? This is, this is the debate, right? You're Spotify. And Tidal. And here's the thing. I actually agree with that. I, I use it because it's convenient, and I signed up for it like a year ago. Okay. And I just have never changed have over like to Spotify. I have playlists for all. I have like playlists for writing. Is it really like that? Does it really like Yeah, it's like oh, it's really great. 
<laughs> it has playlists for different kinds of moods and nuances. Also, it like improves based on your listening habits. I dance with who I came to the dance with, all right? Apple Music, I'm loyal to you, even though you don't do all the special curated stuff. Fine, I just, <laughs> I've got nothing. This tweet comes from The Nerve, The Audacity. I swear, 2018 went January, February, March, April, June. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. Yeah. It yeah, really, really, really does yeah. feel that way. Um, today's the longest day of the year. Which, Happy summer, everybody. Happy summer. This is summer. not the day I would opt to have be the longest day of the year. Yeah, I do remember January feeling really long, but I will say, 2018 feels pretty long itself. Long ass. Allie, you tweeted, do you ever think about all the shady fucking places you went when you were like, 15 or 16 and lied to your parents about and wonder how the hell you're actually still alive and not buried in a shallow grave, still clutching that bottle of UV blue? Mm, I think about it every day, Ali. I every... think about it so much I'm writing a memoir out soon from Simon and Schuster, <laughs> oh. how we fight for our lives. Nice right. plug, nice plug, <laughs> nice Xavier. plug, nice plug. I ordered at Starbucks and they made two white ladies drink ahead of mine and so I said they forgot about me because I'm black as a joke. The manager got so scared and gave me a $25 credit card, credit gift card. I said, get yours. I bet that manager yours, was friend. scared. That keep, him, keep him shook. That manager was like, this was not covered in that meeting we I had. I like it. Oh. Stay nervous. <laughs> you ready for the Stay tweet nervous. of the day? Let's go. Stay nervous. <laughs> tweet of the day comes from Nicole Boyce. I was just in an Uber pool with a couple going to their wedding, and they had the audacity to be mad at me for joining the pool, even though they chose Uber pool on their wedding day. This is quite bizarre. Think about, what would you do quite if you opened odd. a pool and you just saw full wedding? I don't use Uber pool under the best of circumstances, so <laughs> I'm even more confused why you would do that on your, like in, I, Saeed's bouginess saves him again. How the other half lives, I don't get it. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> sticking around, coming up, I'm talking with, well, here's the thing. Seth Rogen and Dominic Cooper about Preacher season three. That's going to be amazing. Dominic Cooper might have slept in a little bit, which, hey, it's real. We're transparent. Listen, we'll see if he shows up or not. Wish I could have slept in, too, to be Seth Rogen is definitely here, though. Because <laughs> he's loyal. <laughs> BuzzFeed reporter Albert Samaha tweeted, A white officer fatally shot a black man in Mississippi. After the cop was fired, he sued the city for racial discrimination. The city rescinded the termination and settled for an undisclosed amount. Albert joins me now to talk about this story. Good morning, Albert. Hey, Isaac, how you doing? I'm doing all right. So let's start with this. Who was Ricky Ball and what happened the night of his death? Ricky Ball uh, was a 25-year-old uh, man who was black and living in Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, the night of his death, um, the car he was in was pulled over um, by uh, several officers. Um, he, Ricky got out, he ran, and while he was running, one of the officers, Canyon Boykin, uh, opened fire, shot him, uh, and killed him. What led to Boykin suing the city? So Boykin was uh, fired two weeks after the shooting, uh, not for the shooting, but for uh, several other violations, including uh, posting inappropriate memes on social media, um, violating ride-along policy, and uh, violating the body camera policy. He didn't have his body camera on. Uh, he, he claims that um, Ricky pointed uh, a gun at him as he was running, uh, although another cop on the scene said she, said she didn't see Ricky pointing a gun. A gun was found on the scene. Um, and, and so after he was fired, he, and you remember, this is, this is October 2015, so this is kind of at the height of our attention on um, cops not getting indicted on police shootings. So uh, he, he, he sued because he said that 
he was fired for being a white officer who shot um, a black person kind of in the midst of this public pressure. What was the city's reasoning for rescinding their termination? The city had planned uh, to take this to trial, right? And, and, and they thought they had a good, um, they, had, they thought they had a good case. Um, but the city says that shortly before the trial, their insurance company uh, said that they didn't want them to take the risk of going to trial and losing big or of any delays uh, that might lead to higher um, legal fees. So they felt that this was kind of a, a pragmatic decision uh, to, to not have to deal with a kind of a more expensive case. Now, you spoke to Ricky Ball's uh, cousin, Ernesto, about this decision. What was his reaction? You know, Ernesto was, when this, when, when this case kind of first happened, shortly after his, his, his cousin was killed, he was optimistic from kind of seeing how the city had been handling it. You know, the, the, the DA immediately got a special prosecutor in. Uh, the local police department didn't handle it. The city council, you know, fired the cop. The police chief resigned. There were all these um, actions that, um, that were different than maybe what would have happened in a police shooting five, six years ago or before Ferguson. Then over the kind of the following months as the, the, the case dragged on and then as the discrimination suit led to settlement and as nationwide we've seen a string of officers involved in high-profile shooting getting um, either acquitted or um, walking free from a hung jury, he began to lose confidence and began to see that maybe he's just kind of waiting for another, in his eyes, injustice. I've got to ask, have other white officers followed suit? Um, or is this case in any way unique? I haven't heard of anyone following suit since Boykin, um, but I have found 25 other officers before him or 24 other officers before him who have filed racial discrimination suits, but usually those are centered on employment issues, um, either not getting promoted or being accused of saying something racist. But this was the first one I can find of an officer making a racial discrimination suit kind of based on the post-Ferguson um, outrage that was coming from the public um, and, and kind of one centered on an officer-involved shooting. So I, I haven't seen if anyone's done this since. I couldn't find any, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it does happen sometime in the future again. All right, now, the, the day for Boykin's trial has not been set yet. What's going to happen with this case moving forward? So, you know, things are pretty much already in place. It's been delayed a few times. Uh, one, because the judge wanted to move it to a different county because there was so much media attention. It was so so well-known locally uh, in Columbus. Um, and, and then there was some um, health issues among some of the lawyers involved. So so some of that kind of, you know, led the case to drag on. And at this point, it seems like most of the discovery, most of the evidence is already in place and everyone's just kind of waiting for the next step. So there's not much more other than to wait and to see if this case will fall in the long line of officers not getting convicted or, or whether we'll see something different here. A long line of officers not being convicted. Well, Albert, thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you for shining light on this story. And thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, listen, up next, uh, Saeed is sitting down with Seth Rogen to talk about the show Preacher, something he loves, I love, based on a great comic book. Stick around.
Welcome back. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with Seth Rogen, the executive producer of the AMC show Preacher, which I'm obsessed with. Thank you. Uh, to start, though, yes. you're from Canada. I am from Canada. Congratulations on the weed legalization. Thank you very much. <laughs> Has it had an impact on your ongoing life, you know? I, of course it does. I, I, I feel like I manifested it. I, I, think I, I really feel like that. I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it happened because of me, but uh, I think maybe I pushed the ball in the right direction. a little bit more time in New York bit. City? Yeah. Um, and they made it in New York that you, they're Working not going to. on it. I feel like it's interesting. I saw the mayor on TV, though, talking about how they're not going to, like, arrest people for yeah, smoking weed on the street anymore, yeah, which yeah, is I feel like fantastic. Cynthia Nixon has Cuomo shit. That's we'll good. See. Yeah. We'll see. I also um, want to apologize to anyone watching this for <laughs> the fact that I'm wearing shorts. It's, it, you should not have to look at a, a man in shorts. show off those gams, dear. I, I have okay legs, but I find, I, was, I find wearing shorts to be a personal failure. Well, uh, we, we like to own our failures. Yeah, and so, so I just want to, I, I, I want the people watching to know that I know. <laughs> That it's weird and kind of gross that you have to look at me. We shorts. stand I a self-aware white man. Yeah, I just okay. don't. Yeah. Okay. Here's the thing. I, I love preacher. So Thank much. you. Um, it's fucked up. Mm -hmm. It's colorful. It's yeah. wild, and and just it makes the most unexpected choices as someone who hasn't read the comics yet. Yeah. Um, what was, what was some of the more interesting challenges in getting it to the screen? I mean, it was considered like an unmakeable comic for a very long time. And it's something that I'd been trying to make for like 10 years okay. before they let us make it. And it kept winding up in the hands of much more talented and established filmmakers than me. <laughs> and for some reason, they weren't able to get it off the ground. And I think it's because it's so fucked up that they weren't able to do it. <laughs> and that we assembled the team of people who were able to kind of wrangle all these insane ideas and present them in a way that actually like kind of made sense, which I think is what other people struggle to do. And, um, but I think that was like, for us, the most exciting part is like the show has everything. It's like has comedy mm -hmm. and horror and love. action and <laughs> love and romance and, and drama. And um, I think that was kind of like the most exciting slash challenging thing was like making a show that could have all those things and kind of swerve between them at the drop of a hat um, and hopefully still have a story that you're like invested in, which is probably the most important thing. As you're watching going into the third season, do you think of Jesse the Preacher as, is he a good person? I think he's torn. Like, I think the show- Does he think he's a good person? I think he probably thinks he's a good yeah, person. Okay. <laughs> and I think he desperately doesn't want to go to hell, which he's afraid he's going to. Um, and, and that's kind of like hanging over him is like maybe he's cursed, but I, I think the show, really is about how like, who's good, who's right. bad? Like everyone has, most people fall in the gray between good and bad and um, and an organized religion does not account for a lot of those people. And I, and I think that's what Jesse's struggling with is that he's a preacher and he's a part of a system with like very clear defined rules but he's finding that those rules don't really apply to like real life or even the people who made those rules right. because because God quit his job. Yeah, totally precarious. Yeah, totally <laughs> exactly. Um, well, you know, each season, I think, that, you know, the first season, I just could not believe what you did. Yeah. <laughs> In the second season, yeah, I was like, oh, son of a... Uh, third, season three, you know, what are you most excited about, people who are like excited about this? Um, I really think season three is like, when I watch it, it feels like the show's like really firing on all cylinders and like has really found its voice as far as like the pace of the episodes and the pace of the story mm -hmm. like um it's been so exciting for me to watch like i literally watched the finale last night like because i've watched almost you know i watched the whole thing uh -huh. early but like 
I, I would enjoy it like a viewer. Like, it's thrilling. So much happens this season in a way that is just unexpected and exciting. And they, I mean, I'm always impressed with the writing and, I, and the directing and the acting. I mean, everyone just did a good job. And it's a crazy show. It is It is. It's wild. totally wild. It's wild. And yeah, and to me, like, in a time when there's, like, 100 million shows on mm -hmm. TV, approximately, mm -hmm. yeah. um, it's nice to have... Something that I can actually say is is unlike any of those shows. Like True. it's a totally unique show. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, so Jesse's God voice is a huge part of the, the show. Yes. <laughs> it matters. It matters a great deal. Uh, Lion King is coming up. Uh huh. So, uh, all right. Have you been practicing your voice? I've been recording. I'm almost done. You're I'm, almost done. I've been how working you, on it for years. Get, yeah. <laughs> how did you get his voice? The, um, the voice of Pumbaa? Yeah. It pretty much is my voice. I, I, I told them going in, like, I don't, I have one voice, okay. essentially. <laughs> so if you want Pumbaa to sound like me. You weren't going to be like, listen, I'm Beyonce. Yeah, Surprise, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what's amazing is I think I will share song credit with Beyonce. Stop on it. Perhaps even more than one song. Like, at, like there will be songs in the world that exist okay. that, like, in the credits, it will be like Beyonce, uh -huh. probably Donald Glover, uh -huh. and Seth Rogen. How, how do you feel about that? It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> and I can see it's made my wife more attracted to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> my All proximity right. to Beyonce yeah. has made me more attracted. Everything yeah. is Yes, love. it's rubbed off on me, yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite part about doing voice recording for something so epic? I mean, it, honestly, Lion King was like one of my favorite movies. Uh, it's like, I love it. And, and, and it's the most expensive movie I've ever had anything to do with. Really? And um, so that is just, there's like a novelty to that that's amazing. And what's also cool is it's directed by Jon Favreau, who I've known since I was 18 years old and have worked with him since then. So there also is like a very like familial sense to it. And, and, and Timon is Billy Eichner, who I've known forever, and uh, I've known Donald for a while. So like, even though it's big and um, intimidating in some ways, uh -huh. I have a lot of anchors uh, with people that I'm comfortable with, right which is nice, yeah. Cool. Well, something that uh, is pretty fun about you is that not only are you good at Twitter and actually use it, your mom yeah. lives for Twitter. My mom is good on social media. <laughs> so <a> Strong social <laughs> media presence. She's, yeah. she's sandy as fierce out here. Um, yeah. So we wanted to see if you could identify some of her tweets. Okay. If I read them to you. Yeah. Um, and oh. do I have to say if they were her tweets or not? Yes. Yeah, okay. It could be her, it could be somebody else. Okay. Falling asleep after sex is like Shasavana after yoga. Yeah, that's my that's mom. That's definitely your mother. You're my mom. That's definitely your mom. Which is a horrible thing to have your mom <laughs> put out there. And what's funny, put that back. No matter what the tweet, my mom finds a way to include oh, a grammatical yeah, error. Like no matter how no matter how concise it's the, the tweet, there is something wrong with it. Yeah. That's kind of the most it's mom the, part the of it. Period and exclamation mark <laughs> is the most mom part of that. Um, let's see. Uh, why does some wine go right to my head and some feels like fruit juice? Is that my mom? That was true. Probably, mom. yeah. <laughs> and I assume there's some. No, she spent in that one has that one spelt right. <laughs> she has a moments. All right, Sandy. Okay, one more. Um, I feel like there's a giant meatloaf inside of me. <laughs> Is that probably my mom also, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's actually Chris Jenner. Oh really? Chris, who is my mom? <laughs> <laughs> they have met each other. 
<laughs> I love it. Well, yeah. Seth, thank you so much for coming no to hang out Thanks this morning. Con again, congratulations on the new season. Like, no problem. If you see Dominic Cooper in public, feel Where free to, to shame him and yell at him. <laughs> He's probably hung over, so make loud noises, bang things okay. near yeah. him. Don't, yeah. don't tweet his phone number now, because you've seen that. Yeah, people, that people don't like that. Look out, yeah. don't do But it. he is on social media, so you can mock Harassing. him openly on social media hey, for this. All right, yeah. it's called promotion. Yes. Season three of Preacher premieres this Sunday on AMC, June 24th at 10 a.m. Up next, uh, Isaac is talking about 10 p.m. 10 p.m. 10 a.m. would be an amazing oh, time to premiere an hour-long drama. <laughs> Isaac up next talks about Won't You Be My Neighbor. Uh, I'm going to leave the studio so I don't start crying about it. <laughs> yeah, man. This has been a tough news week so far, and the new Mr. Rogers documentary might just be what we all need to get through the rest of it. Kevin Fallon, senior entertainment reporter at The Daily Beast, joins me now to give us the scoop on Won't You Be My Neighbor. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with a couple of tweets here. Uh, actress Mara Wilson tweeted, I started crying shortly after the title screen of Won't You Be My Neighbor and pretty much kept going until the end. And Jesse Thorne tweeted, chugging a Gatorade. Got to replace the fluids and electrolytes I lost during several truly athletic crying jags during my screening of Won't You Be My Neighbor. Uh, Kevin, you yourself mentioned crying quite a bit in your piece about this movie. Uh, what about it that is so riling to the emotions? Yeah, those people certainly aren't overreacting. Um, it's it's this thing where we all have such a, a a personal and intimate connection to Mr. Rogers from our childhood, and and sort of being an adult now and remembering how those things shaped you and and how important those values are uh, in your life, and then also watching that against the sort of backdrop of everything horrible that's happening in America right now. It all just sort of. Uh, uh, combines for this like emotional cauldron that's boiling over as you as you watch it. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that I absolutely love. I remember growing up with Mr. Rogers and, and and his philosophy of kind of being kind to everyone, especially to strangers, always really resonated with me. What, what do you think you can take away from the documentary right now, given as you just said these trying times? Well, I think what's really interesting is that our relationship with Mr. Rogers predates any sort of political identity that we had. So th th this isn't a, uh, a liberal screed against what Republicans are doing to our country or um, sort of any sort of uh, campaigning. It's just a reminder that at, at the heart, we're all the same humans with the same values and the same compassion and the same capacity for goodness. And that's something that I, I think that we all need right now. Um, the least of which is just his, his daily mantra, won't you be my neighbor? Look at what's going on in the news with these people being separated from their families and, and, and think about how important remembering just that very simple um, four words are. Yeah, won't you be my neighbor? Uh, you know, Mr. Rogers, he came up in a time before social media. Do you learn anything in the documentary uh, that, that we didn't know about the man himself? I think the biggest revelation of the documentary is just how much he is exactly the person that we thought he was. Um, I, I think we are so used to these days having our heroes fall and learning um, these dark secrets about their their lives that, that disappoint us. And the great thing about Mr. Rogers was that he actually was that pure, that earnest, that good, and um, that passionate um, about his message, which is just that we, we are all deserving of love no matter who we are.
I won't lie, that's really good to hear about the film. I would hate it if I walked into a Mr. Rogers documentary. It was like, surprise, he was a monster. Um, I want to get to this tweet from Ashley C. Ford. She said, I was a kid who felt trapped inside of myself by the intensity of my feelings and thoughts. Mr. Rogers never said the feelings would go away, but he did say that it was totally normal to feel them. That helped me a lot. Uh, how did this documentary capture Mr. Rogers' kind of uh, views on authentic feelings? I mean, we hear a lot from him. We hear from his from his wife, and we also hear from several of the um, young people who um, appeared um, on his show over time. And and what you learn is the sort of transgressive thing that he did was make the point that children's feelings have just as much legitimacy as adult feelings are, and that if we talk about these feelings and engage these feelings, we can actually become better people as opposed to ignoring them. And and that's that's sort of where the root of, of evil and darkness is. And the fact that he said that about children um, is is just sort of revolutionary. And I think we're still having a hard time all these years later grappling with that. Kevin, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show this morning. And thank you for your great piece. We'll be sure to tweet it out right now. Thank you. All right, Twitter, we want to hear from you. Uh, we want to know your basically favorite best Mr. Rogers memories. All right, just share them with us. Use the hashtag am to dm Up next, Saeed and I are going to react to your tweets. Welcome back. We were just talking about Mr. Rogers and Miss Jonesy. You had this to say. Mr. Rogers encouraging us to learn who lived in our neighborhoods is a defining motivator in my life. Knowing who works and lives here and caring about that is so powerful and long-lasting. Bless. And yeah, Ooh. it's... Have you seen it yet? I saw the trailer and listen, I'm not playing with you girls. I am not watching that damn documentary. <gasps> I think it would frankly be too devastating to sit there and really have to consider what has been lost mm. and what we have failed to replace or reimagine mm. um, in, in the wake of, of Mr. Rogers. There's, there's no one like him. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that has stepped up to, you know, fill that sense of generosity. And I just can't do it. I can't do it. Oh, my gosh. How do you I, feel about Mr. Rogers? I feel like I'm going to talk to you in about you a sure week. sure aren't. I'm going to be like, <laughs> I'm gonna be like, hey, man, we're going to see The Incredibles no. too. And then I'm going to hit oh you. Oh, my God. Hit you with and it. And you know I would get up and walk out of that theater. I think there's you no way. You would have yourself maybe a good when it's like maybe when I can watch it at home but you know I get sad and then I think about things for days and I just could not frankly do that and then come in here the next day and talk about the news well listen case. reading Kevin's piece there's all there's a lot of joy to be found in it yeah. too so. well enjoy it Kevin <laughs> anyway after hearing about the clusterfuck in Congress um, also shout out to Paul McLeod's like clusterfuck mm -hmm. like woo it was great I was like you know something we don't know Pix Maven you said this uh, I now even more so want to grab a beer with Paul McLeod and talk about the hell we're all headed for yeah mm. it's uh it's yeah uh, you know, we've grabbed a beer. With, it's, it's pretty great. It's delightful. It's like Mr. Rogers. It's like Mr. Rogers. As good as you think Mr. Rogers was, that's who he really was. Yeah. As good as you think Paul McCloud is, that's who he really is. Even better. It's mm -hmm. hard to, it's hard. We need to do that again. We I love grabbing a beer it. with Paul. Absolutely. Um, and this is what, oh man, and this is so shady. Rachel, hey, girlfriend, you said this about Stephen Miller. Ah, Stephen Miller. Never knew such evil would come from a guy whose name sounds like a bland, overpriced beer. Ooh. Eater did. Ooh. I feel like there was a, uh, you know, a Stephen Miller band joke, low-hanging fruit. She didn't go for it. She went for her own joke. Oh, I liked it. Go it high. was really good. Uh, do you want to share your favorite facts about Stephen Miller? We are the same age. 
Stephen Miller and I are both 32 years old. We were born within months of one another, and he looks like that, and I look like this. Saeed's favorite facts. My favorite fact, <laughs> I rejoice. It's the only proof I have that I'm doing something right. Okay, anyway, thank you to all of our guests. I also wanna say Seth Rogen. Amazing! <laughs> absolute delight. He's exactly how he is. So nice and so fun. Great. Thank you for joining us, Seth Rogen, Zoe Tillman, Paul McLeod, Benjamin Zhang, Tanya Chin, Charlie Warzel, Albert Samaha, and Kevin Fallon for traumatizing us. Absolutely. Tomorrow is Friday. We will be here at 10 a.m. It will be the end of the week, we promise. No extra Hold days. Fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. <sighs> We're almost there. Gonna do it. It's fine. Gonna make it. It'll be great.